It's just a few days into the new year, but we've got our eyes looking both short-term, in fact, on something that will happen tomorrow, and then thinking ahead already to tax day, that'll be one of our segments, and in fact, keeping up our reporting on the 2018 midterm elections. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for January 3rd, 2018. And at least I got that right, 2018. I'll probably write checks totally wrong for the next few weeks, but Happy New Year to everyone. So we're going to start with the GOP tax scam, which left a lot of people scrambling to understand what it meant, aside from knowing that it's a big wet kiss to rich people and corporations, people want to know what it means to them personally. And one of the big ways in which the bill screws people, regular people, is by eliminating the ability to completely deduct state and local income and property taxes from your federal taxes. It used to be there was no cap, and this GOP scam bill set a cap of $10,000, which is bad news for people in certain income brackets. But Dean Baker has a potentially great idea that is catching fire. Dean has been a regular guest on the podcast, as my regular listeners know. He is at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And now that this crazy tax GOP scam bill has passed, Dean, there's a lot of panic on the part of lots of people about what it means for them individually. And certainly I've heard from, you know, certainly artists and all these creative people who are independent people, you know, they're not sure what they're able to deduct. But in this quick conversation, I want to focus on something that you seem to have found an ingenious solution to, which is the feeling that people have, uh, the panic or the concern people have about the ability to deduct state and local taxes. So let's first Um, set the parameters about what this tax bill says about that? Well, what the tax bill does is it limits the amount of money that people could deduct in total for state and local property and income taxes. So currently, you could deduct whatever you pay. And uh, people with relatively high incomes and high tax states that could easily run into the $20,000, $30,000, $40,000 range. There was never a cap on that up until now. That's right. And the logic is you, this isn't really part of your income. If it's being taxed away at the state or local level, that's not part of your income. So it wasn't an unreasonable deduction. I mean, we talk about some deductions as being a loophole. It's a little hard to see that as a loophole. If you, Whatever your income is, if you're paying 20000 in taxes to, to state and local governments, well, you don't have that to spend. They've taken that from you. So on the face of it, it there's a pretty good logic for the deduction. It doesn't. It's not some wacky thing that, you know, some congressperson came up to help his friends. Um, so that was the logic of it. And what this what this tax bill does, it says, okay, you can deduct up to 10000 The original bill in the House eliminated the deduction altogether, but they went back and forth and they decided, okay, combine your, your state income taxes, combine that with your property taxes, you get to deduct up, up to, to $10,000. And to be fair, most Middle-income people, someone earning sixty, seventy, even eighty thousand, puts you well above the median. Um, they probably aren't going to have more than ten thousand in, uh, in in state and local taxes. But if you have if you have someone who's not rich by any means, but clearly better than most people, doing better than most people, say someone earning two hundred thousand a year, mm-hmm. and in many states you have a, have an income tax on the order of five percent, even six percent. So let's just take five percent. Well, there's your ten thousand. 
Right. If you own a home and in many of areas, certainly here in DC or California, New York City area, um, very middle class home could be five or six hundred thousand dollars. So you could easily pay someone in the order of six, seven, eight thousand in taxes on a home that again isn't a mansion. It's comfortable, but it's not it's not a lavish house. Right. So you could easily envision a comfortable middle class, upper middle class person having somewhere fifteen, even twenty thousand dollars in state and local taxes. And with this new bill, they'll only be able to deduct ten thousand. So let's say they had fifteen thousand that they otherwise would have deducted, that's a difference of five thousand dollars. Say they're in the twenty-five percent bracket, they're going to see an addition to their tax bill on the order of twelve hundred fifty dollars. It's right. not this, devastating, but it's not chump change. And as you point out, this is not like you know superbly wealthy people who just kind of shrug that off and just toss it off. That is, you know, that could be very significant to someone. Let's say that's putting a kid through college or something like that. And it especially affects property owners as opposed to renters who don't have the property taxes, presumably. That's right. So if you just paid the state income tax, again, first I'm talking about 150, 200,000 a year, they might be bumping up against it, maybe a little bit over, probably wouldn't be that big a deal. It's more if you both are facing the state income tax, state and local income tax. And then on top of that, you have a home and you're paying property tax on it. Mm. So tell us now what you're proposing in the introduction. I put a link in and talked about um, the fact that this is really catching fire. The New York, even the New York Times has uh, reported Dean's proposal, and you know it may even become law in a couple of these states. Tell us, explain what you're suggesting be done to avoid this problem. Okay, so the basic story is that states say, okay, we had been having this income tax, let's replace it with an employer side payroll tax, and there's complications. So let me just give the simplest possible case. Let's say we have the person I was talking about before earns $200,000 a year, okay, then say they're facing a 5% flat income tax, say mm-hmm. the simplest possible case. Okay, they're paying $10,000 a year in, in their state income tax today. If they have property taxes on top of that, they're not able to deduct those. That income tax put them right at the limit there. Okay, suppose you say instead of having a 5% income tax, we're going to have a 5% employer side payroll tax. So it's only your employer that's going to pay it. So you work for Boeing, you work for a bank, you work for whoever it is, they're going to pay a 5% tax on what they pay you. This is just like with Social Security. We have a 6.2% tax. I pay that as a worker. My employer also pays a 6.2% tax. So it'd be like the employer side tax on Social Security, but this would be applied to your wages and go to the state government. And we then turn around and we get rid of that 5% income tax. Now, most economists will say, okay, if we have an employer side payroll tax, what the employer is going to say is, well, I don't care whether I pay the money to you or I pay it to the government, I'm going to have to lower your wages. So that, here that was, was my person. first thought. That was my first thought. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're going to lower their wages. So here was this person that had been getting 200000 a year. Now the government's imposed a 5% employer side payroll tax. They go, okay, that's coming out of your wages. You can get 190000 a year. Okay, well, that's a wash, right? Well, I used to get 200000 a year, and I had to spend 10000 pay 10000 to the state government in income taxes. Now I'm getting 190000 a year, and I don't have to pay – I don't pay any state income tax on it. The reason why that's different is I only pay federal income taxes on my 190000 in income, not the 200000 uh-huh. So in effect, what that's done is it's preserved the full tax deduction – for the amount of the state payroll tax. Mm-hmm. 
The one thing that um, I, I see the idea behind this now, but what happens if we're able to reverse that this tax um, imposition? Let's say this is a political question. Let's say in 2018 or 2020, the Democrats are in charge, the Democratic president, and you roll that back and you reinstate the ability to deduct those, you've then lost your ability to make that money or you've lost $10,000. Is that a complication or is that just something that is not important? Well, it, it is an issue to consider, but I guess what I would say is two things. One is we don't know what will happen in the future. So True. I think it's totally reasonable. This, this bill, just to be clear, yep. everyone in Congress understood this was an intention, intentionally designed to screw blue states like New York, California, that vote Democratic and have relatively high taxes. And of course, the purpose of those high taxes is to provide reasonably good education, reasonably good health care. We call a complaint, it could be better. But I think there's little doubt if you're a lower middle income person growing up in New York or California, your life prospects are a hell of a lot better than Louisiana or Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So that So this is an effort to screw those states. So that's the world we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. So in that context, both to try to keep those states whole and quite frankly, to give a big middle finger, or as I like to say, say Merry Christmas to Donald Trump and the Republicans, this is a great way to do it. You thought you were going to screw us. Get what? Guess what? You screwed yourself. And so to sum up what your proposal does is it make sure the state still gets that funding because as we just as you just said this is about maintaining services infrastructure education the thing that the states do and at the same time it doesn't screw the taxpayer in fact to repeat what it does is it lowers essentially what they pay for federal taxes so they essentially come out uh, on the positive side exactly so so the states come out um, as well off or better off and in fact it actually, better or worse, I mean, whether you decide this is something you'd like or not, this in effect gives the, makes all state taxes or the, at least the payroll tax deductible even for people who don't itemize. So mm-hmm. say you have a middle income person earning 60000 a year, they don't have enough uh, deductions to make it worth their while to itemize, they're, they're still paying this 5% payroll tax or their employer is. Well, they're in effect getting that that benefit. So if they were in, say, the the fifteen percent bracket, you know, sixty thousand. So the five percent there's three thousand dollars is the size of that payroll tax, and fifteen percent bracket that's four hundred fifty dollars in their pocket. Mm. So uh, as I mentioned just a minute ago, it's your idea is getting some traction um, around the country. What do you think are the prospects? And this is a political question, some way of it being implemented. Well, by the traction it's gotten, I think it's actually pretty good. I mean, I, I've been with back and forth with some tax experts. I'm not. I mean, tax lawyers, in other words. I don't know the law. I know the economics. And all of them seem to think that this is workable. In- inevitably, there'll be complications. There's no way in the world you could ever do anything that has an impact in the world that doesn't have some complications. But those mostly seem relatively minor. So given that you have a lot of money at stake and it's not just for poor people. I mean, we all know the story. Oh, look at these homeless people, this and that. And the politicians will go, oh, yeah, we feel bad for them, but we can't do anything. These are people with some power. I mean, these are these are doctors. These are lawyers. These are people earning, you know, two hundred, three or four or five hundred thousand a year. They're the ones who are hit hardest by it. 
So when you go, here's a real easy way for you guys to have your taxes, you know, basically be left whole, there's going to be a lot of pressure for them to do it. And you would assume that it's, uh, a bunch of those people, it's sort of the two, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars are potentially Republicans in suburban areas who might say, hey, those Democrats are pushing this. They're not so bad. So politically, it's a winner, too. It's a yeah, and I have to imagine if you're a Republican, you're trying to be on the other side of this. It's almost dead meat because take the the Republicans who are on who who voted for the tax bill. They could at least say, "Oh, we have some tax cuts for you." Now, maybe some of these people would end up losers even with that, but they could still say, "Hey, we did cut your taxes. You're in the top bracket. You had been paying thirty nine six. We made it thirty seven. That's good." You have, a, you have a lower or higher threshold for the estate tax. I mean, there are different things that you could point to that someone who's relatively well off, but not Bill Gates, that you could say you did for them, even if they're going to pay more because of their state and local taxes. But in this case, you're just raising their taxes. So that's a pretty hard position for politicians to be in. hard to overstate how anti-union the Los Angeles Times has been when it comes to having a union for its journalists. And this goes back many decades. The Chandler family, which owned the paper at the time, back in the early part of the 20th century, was vehemently anti-union and worked with employers to drive out unions and to try to create a city, Los Angeles, that was union-free in part to undercut wages in the heavily unionized San Francisco to the north. In fact, in 1910, a union member of the striking iron workers dynamited the Times building as part of a broad campaign of resistance by striking workers. And that explosion killed 21 people, and that certainly hardened the Chandler family's attitude against unions. And throughout the ensuing decades, any attempt to unionize the Times went nowhere. And to some extent, this was driven by the relatively higher wages L.A. Times journalists received compared to counterparts around the country. Now, not that journalists at the L.A. Times were going to become wealthy, but they were paid at a higher scale than many of their counterparts. But things have changed a lot. The paper has been sold several times, including to the Chicago-based Tribune Company, which is an austerity-minded company. And then most recently, it's been sold to a company called Trunk. That's T-R-O-N-C, which somehow makes me think of some venal character in the movie Aliens. You know, right, Trunk. It's truly a robber baron-type company, paying its executives millions of dollars, flying them around in private planes, raking in $1.5 billion in revenues, and yet looking to cut costs. But that has all made this possible. It looks like there will finally be a union at the LA Times. Tomorrow, workers will begin voting, and that voting will wrap up on the 18th with the count the next day on the 19th. And so we're lucky to have 
Carolina Miranda, a Times reporter, to give us the insight to the campaign, which, by the way, you can read all about at their terrific website, latguild.com. That's latguild.com. And Carolina, before we go into the exact specifics of the organizing campaign and how this has all progressed, tell us a little bit about you and how you got into journalism, what kind of reporting you've been doing in most recent times. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm a staff writer at the Los Angeles Times where mm-hmm. I cover arts and culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everything from art to architecture and occasionally I dip a toe into film. Uh, and I've been at the paper now for uh, going on four years uh, on this go around. I actually, this is my second time at the LA Times. I briefly worked at the LA Times when I was in college for a summer as a desk assistant mm. uh, in 1990. So <laughs> this, is, this is actually my, my second go around. And I've, I've worked at a number of other media organizations. I lived, I'm from California, but I lived in New York for a while where I worked at Time Magazine. Uh, which was a union shop. Uh, I also worked at New York Newsday, which was another union shop. Um, And then I was a freelancer for a long time covering arts and and culture issues. Right. And you mentioned the, you sort of previewed the next question I was going to ask. You've been in a union shop before at Newsday. I'm quite familiar with as well as time. And so how was that different initially in your perception of being in a union shop and then coming back to the LA Times, did you sense all of a sudden something different for you? You know what I sensed really different was when I went to sign my employment contract and I saw that, uh, for example, if I got laid off, all I was guaranteed was two weeks pay Mm -hmm. and uh, my employment was at will rather than just cause employment, just for just cause, you know, people really have to build a case on why they need to get rid of you, whereas at will is a lot more flexible for the employer. Like they can pretty much get rid of you for most reasons. Uh, And so that was something that I noticed right off that there were basic worker protections that I had had in other jobs that all of a sudden I didn't have. And so my sense is then when the organizing campaign got going here at the LA Times, I assume that you were a early convert or participant. You know, I actually was a little bit late to the ball game. I can't take mm. credit. My colleagues started, there was a group of journalists that started talking about establishing a union as early as December of 2016. So that was uh, already over a year ago. I joined in in early summer. Um, and I think part of it was uh, this, the movement to unionize came out of the metro section of the newspaper. And I work in calendar and sometimes you know, everyone's out doing their jobs and running around and reporting and we don't always get to connect and communicate with each other in ways that we would like. So I only found out about the effort probably like in late spring, early summer, late mm. spring probably. And that's that's when I joined on and I became a part of the organizing committee and have been involved ever since. And as you point out, that's a great observation that especially in something like the a newspaper where people are out of the road, they're out on assignment and sometimes one department doesn't talk to another department. That's just as a matter of course. So it makes it even harder in terms of trying to organize union where probably initially they wanted to keep it somewhat uh, on the down low until they got some momentum. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It was, it was the question of, is this the climate? Will we have the support, Um, you know, really trying to get a sense, you know, you're kind of dipping a toe in the water to see how it will be received. 
I think as, as most people know at this point, um, the LA Times has a pretty strong anti-union history. The Chandler family, which used to own the paper, uh, was very anti-union. Uh, General Otis, who who ran the paper for a long time in the early 20th century, he was very anti-union. So this is this is a paper with a sort of a history of anti-union feeling like from from its owners. And so I think for the organizing committee, it's been this very careful process of of okay, let's see what the appetite for this is combined with, you know, for a shop that's never been anti-union and perhaps for staff members who've never worked in a place where there has been a union, you know, what does this mean? It's it, it meant, you know, some educating uh, for folks that have never worked in a union shop because there, there are a lot of stereotypes that it's like, oh, no, we won't have any flexibility. Uh, you know, we're going to have to pay all this money in dues and we're going to have to do this and we're going to have to do that. Um, and I think, uh, you know, letting folks know that that there is something that you get in exchange for those dues. You get better job security. You maybe get like regular increases every once in a while. Uh, you know, you get just cause employment instead of at will employment and, um, and that our jobs remain very flexible. You know, there are journalists at the New York times and the wall street journal uh, Reuters. Those are all union shops. They all do what they need to do. Uh, they're very flexible places to work. And so the idea that somehow a union coming into the shop is going to be inflexible um, you know, those were all things, I think, ideas that, that we had to, to contend with. But I think I think the feeling generally, and we at this point have an overwhelming majority has supported uh, the, the unionization effort, because I think the feeling is, you know, the one constant in all of this is the L.A. Times journalists. Right. And I wonder if you confronted as well this uh, factor. I organized freelance writers for a number of years. I ran the writers union for a number of years. And freelancers, as you are a freelancer, you know, are a specific Mm -hmm. kind of writer. But I wonder generally, because I've seen this among artists and creative people in general, unlike say coal miners, where when they go Mm -hmm. down into a mine, they know that their safety and their livelihood depends on one another. I've often found that creative people, not just writers, but in general, you know, actors, they're so um, confident that their success is based on their specific talent, their ability to write or create, that in a certain way, there's a part of creative people that says, I don't need other people to succeed. I've got my own talent. And sometimes I think that leaks into people thinking about unionism. Yeah, that, that, that can definitely be the case. I mean, I think with most writers, you know, there is a bit of what I call lonerism, you know, writer, you, sure, you go out and report, and you talk to people and you're out and about. But when it comes down to sit when it comes down to that moment where we sit down to do the nitty gritty of what we do, it's a very loner job. You're by yourself. You do it by yourself. Um, you know, you work with your editor, but you're, you're kind of isolated. And we also work in jobs where like, for example, the sports writers are constantly flying around, going to games, driving to games. They're out at night. They're, you know, working at odd hours Our our music critics, the same thing, you know, people maintaining these very odd schedules where, you know, whereas the coal miners are in that coal mine together every minute of the day, we're all kind of disparate and, and atomized and out in the world. But, you know, I think the, even even though there is a, a creative bent to what we do, I, I think the feeling at the L.A. Times, the sense that we've gotten is that, you know, it's time that that this paper has gone through a number of different ownerships and publishers and editors. 
And, uh, you know, even in the time that I've been here, which is not even four years, it's probably like three and a half or three and three quarters at this point. You know, I've been through four different publishers and that's a lot. And so what what is the constant here? The constant is the journalist, the journalist who no matter what is going on at the executive at the executive level, still get up every day and do what they need to do. You know, like uh, last year when our team went out and reported on that terrible shooting in San Bernardino that ended up winning a Pulitzer, that was in the wake of layoffs, you know, that, and so I feel like this team, our, our team feels a little, a little beat up a little bit. There's been a lot of change. There's been a lot of people who've come in and said, you know, now we're going to fix it. We're going to do X, Y, and Z without often taking, you know, the journalists as a priority that, that mm. we don't always feel like we are, we are the priority for the company. And so, so I think the feeling on this, despite being creative, despite being loners, despite being all over the place, I think the feeling is, you know what, we need to come together because our best act, our best advocates are going to be us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. not, it's not going to be the, the corporate suite. So this may be the most challenging part of the interview that I'm now about to ask you. Um, mm-hmm. I looked at your Twitter Uh, comments. And here was something you wrote on December 20th. Every time I read an anti-union memo from LA Times management, I'm going to do it in the voice of King George III from Hamilton. So I'm tempted tempted to take you up on that challenge that you do it in that voice, but I'll also cut you some slack and you can do it. That would be terrifying because, you know, King George says all his lines in Hamilton while he's singing and I can't sing. So maybe we could just cut in some audio. Well, I think I'm going to cut you some... I'm going to cut you some slack as a fellow union member. Just say, let's talk a little bit about that anti-unionism, um, the, what you call Union Busting 101 in your website, and give my listeners a couple of examples about how the management has tried to, in fact, act like any hardcore company and break the effort here. Yeah, I, you know, it's been a lot of memos uh, describing like one of the boilerplate points is that, you know, that a union is going to come between the employees and management. And, you know, our consistent reply to that is the union is the employees like they're the that the news guild helps us with the legal bargaining and they help us with the other you know things that we as journalists might not know but the people driving this effort are la times employees so that whole idea that somehow there's this third party that's going to come in and get between us and management uh you know that 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 is that is something that we've heard of a lot. And that's typical anti-union boilerplate. Uh, the other thing is, you know, you're, we can't guarantee anything. Times are tough. And when you yeah. start bargaining, you start at zero. And so obviously that freaks a lot of journalists out because they're like, whoa, wait, we're starting at zero. That means we might give up the few benefits that we have. But, you know, the fact is that the National Labor Relations Board rules protect whatever is in place at the time that we form the union. The company can't just be making changes now just because they feel like it. But then they state like, oh, you know, you're starting at zero. You're starting at zero. Uh, uh, even though that's that's not true. And and in the history, like all companies do this. Yes, they're trained. They're they're trained by union busting uh, lawyers. These guys in three piece suits to exactly just go right along the line, skirting breaking the law. By you know you can't break. There's certain things you can't say that would be violations of the law, but you can go right up to that line and talk about you know layoffs and things that might happen. And times are tough. Exactly. Yeah, and they also one of the things they do is like 
you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, making decisions and about, you know, implying, not outright stating, but implying that, you know, in order to give some employees raises, that others would have to suffer cuts. And, you know, that kind of pits the newsroom against each other because it's like, wait, you know, just so the youngins can get raises, does that mean that designers are going to be fired? You know, what does that mean? What does that mean? And, and you know, in speaking to the, the folks who do the negotiating for the News Guild, they're like, look, we've never, we've never bargained a contract on the backs of one segment of the newsroom. Like, it just doesn't, it's not the purpose of a union. You know, you don't throw, you don't throw your fellow members under the bus. The whole idea is, you know, rising tides lifts all, lifts all boats. So, you know, they've come through with these very boilerplate management, you know, it's going to get between us. But, you know, uh, uh, these kind of pitting the union as this new arrival, this Johnny come lately that's joining, you know, the party now, even though our executive team, frankly, you know, if we were looking at issues of seniority, they, they're the ones who've been around the, the least amount of time. You know, when you, when you look at who's been at the company for how long, I mean, we've all been there longer than, than the, the executive team has. So I think, I think the feeling is like, all right, we're going to have to do this ourselves. Like we need, we need some protections. We, we don't, we don't have, this is not pie in the sky. I don't think anybody's expecting the union to like all of a sudden make magic and it's going to make newspapers easy, amazing places to work at. You know, media is media and media is experiencing a lot of turmoil because of the internet, because of politics, of a lot of things, but let's at least have a few protections. Like, the, all the executive team all has contracts that guarantee the terms of their employment. Let's have the same for us, mm. you know? And actually, on this question of contracts and compensation, uh, one of the great things you guys have on your websites is you're pointing out, first of all, that Trunk uh, earned $1.5 billion in annual revenue and is a profitable corporation. And even more so, these guys, the top CEOs, are getting paid huge amounts of money compared to the average salary of a reporter, and they fly around in private jets. Uh, you pointed yeah. out that the private jet for Michael Farrow um, mm-hmm. cost the, the chairman. Yeah, cost the company millions of dollars every year. So it's not as if there's no money; it's just that they don't want to share it and give it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They the the private the eighty five hundred dollar an hour private jet that has cost the company so far $4.6 million to lease. Uh, You know, there's the golden parachutes that we've paid outgoing uh, executives. There's uh, a trunk CEO, Justin Dearborn, made an $8.1 million in total compensation, which is uh, in pay and stock options, which is greater than the compensation of New York Times CEO, Mark Thompson. New York Times is valued, I think it's something like four times of what the LH trunk is. So it's a much bigger, it's a, it's a bigger valued, a better valued media company. Um, so yeah, they're paying and- themselves very handsomely to do what they're doing while, you know, hemming and hawing about layoffs and they can't guarantee us basic protections and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's a lot of alligator tears as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm guessing that this is one thing that made a lot of progress and hay with uh, lots of your potential um, union members to see 
you know, on the one hand, yes, they're saying, well, do you need a union? But on the other hand, there's money there. I mean, it's not exactly. as there's not money to pay people more, not to mention offer them security. It's a very wealthy. Exactly. Group. I mean, nobody, nobody gets into journalism and especially newspaper uh, print journalism mm-hmm. to get rich. We right. all know that none of us is going to be getting wealthy off of, off of what we do, that we do what we do because we see it to some degree as a public service, because we love writing, because we love informing, um, because, you know, some of us fight corruption and investigate the government. Like that's what drives us. It's not the money, but mm-hmm. You know, when you see this money being thrown around at the executive level and then, you know, they turn around and tell you, well, we don't know that there's any money for cost of living increases. You know, this is a company that is something for like eight years. There have been no cost of living increases. And then the team came in and gave there was a small increase that was given, but it was given selectively around the newsroom. There's been no across the board uh, cost of living increases. And this is in a company where the CEO is flying an $8,500 an hour private jet. Like it's just not that's that, you know, we are the ones who make the company what it is. Like that's just unconscionable as, as far as I'm concerned. You know, first class is really nice. First class is really, really nice. You could do without the private jet. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, you still get champagne and fresh cookies in first class. So it's cool, man. <laughs> Even now with the cutbacks on airlines. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, he'd be set. <laughs> so tomorrow the vote is going to happen. And so it sounded like from our conversation, you feel very uh, confident given the majority of people that have expressed uh, their support. So give us a sense of what you think is going to happen tomorrow. And then I assume you understand that after that comes a campaign to make sure you get a good contract. Of course, of course. So tomorrow, you know, we feel really good about, about the vote tomorrow. We had, when we filed cards to get the sort of union process rolling, we had more than 70% uh, support across the newsroom, different departments. So, you know, I, we all feel, everybody on the organizing committee feels very strongly that this votes well for the election and that we'll have a strong majority for the election. Not just a simple majority, but a strong majority. Um, and, and so then the process from there, tomorrow is the election. Then there is still a two-week period afterwards in which mail-in ballots have, they have until January 18th. Uh, reporters who work in bureaus like mm-hmm. such as our Sacramento Bureau, our New York Bureau, we have we have reporters spread around the country that can't come into the office to vote. So they have until January 18th to get their ballots in. And then on January 19th is the vote count. And that's when we find out the results. So there will be two weeks of nail biting, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe some intense whiskey drinking. Uh, and you're, 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 you're and journalist after all. You're journalist after exactly, all. You have to drink. Exactly. Exactly. It's the law. <laughs> it's in our contract. Um, and then, uh, so then we find out the results and yes. And then comes the process of setting up uh, the bargaining committee that, you know, we need to establish who's going to negotiate on behalf of the company, the representatives from the, from the LA times that are going to negotiate on behalf of the other employees. And then we need to get down to the, the, the difficult, I mean, it's going to be challenging work of figuring out what do we ask for in our first contract? What are the priorities? I mean, we have some sense of what those priorities are. Uh, One is to lock in some of the benefits 
we already have. Uh, so, for example, making sure that photographers are taken care of with gear um, and making sure that sports reporters uh, are being compensated for all of the time that they spend on the on the road, you know, sometimes working six, seven days a week, um, making sure that new employees have uh, an opportunity to you know, sometimes new employees are hired at are hired at, at at lower wages. So, can there be like a step increase program uh, for new employees in the first few years they're in the company? Locking in things like vacation benefits, which the company previously changed unilaterally, and seeing if we can get just cause employment. So, I think this first contract is it's modest in its goals. It's going to be like let's lock in some of what we already have and see if we can secure a few benefits beyond that. And, you know, Carolina, sometimes unions have mixed support from the general public that depends on what kind of union is organizing and where you're at geographically. What kind of support have you all had from the general public to the extent you've heard from them? Well, it it has been surprisingly amazing. I I feel like we've been greeted by the general public with like a warm hug. People have been, we've had hundreds of people sign up for subscriptions or gifted student subscriptions as a way of showing support to the LA Times Guild. And I think I think part of that stems from, you know, this is a moment in which journalism is under fire, that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the economy has devoured uh, local news organizations. Uh, a lot of newspapers have shut down. A lot of newspapers have shrunk. Or a lot of newspapers are just running wire stories. And so I think people are recognizing the importance of having a strong, uh, journalistic-minded, civic-minded uh, media organization in their community. And so I feel like a lot of the support, I think, comes from that as well, of recognizing that, hey, you know, what we do is important, that yes, it can be fun to make fun of the media and, you know, how silly and ridiculous we are and why did so-and-so write that story? But the fact is that the stories we do are really important and they make news and they break news. And, you know, it's everything, the stuff that we've done is everything on malfeasance by a dean at USC yes, to the great Sackler. Yeah. The Sackler, you know, family investigation and uh, opioid, the opioid uh, yep. epidemic. So those kinds of things, I think people recognize this is really important, and we need to support the people who do that work. And I suspect um, this, and I suspect this being Los Angeles and California, that there's probably an element of people being sensitive to some guy in the White House making it his <laughs> business to attack reporters and people like you all the time. Uh, perhaps, perhaps there's an element of that there. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> I mean, I think I think it's overall there's just been a questioning of the media. There's been a bit of a reckoning over the last, uh, you know, five or six years, and certainly since the advent of the of the internet. And um, and I think in the past year there has been uh, a realization that you know, that reporting is important, that you need people who go to those boring city council meetings and the transportation board meetings and the water board meetings and the, you know, and all of those things that, you know, that, that aren't getting covered by the websites doing clickbait, that's important and it's boring and it's tedious and you need someone to do it because it's our drinking water, it's our power, it's our cities, it's our government, you know, it's us.
Iowa. Yep, we're talking Iowa politics, but today it isn't presidential politics. Today we're going to be talking about the third congressional district in Iowa, which Barack Obama won twice, though the ignoramus in the Oval Office managed to win it in 2016. It's now on the list of districts that could flip from Republican to Democrat in the 2018 midterm elections because the incumbent, David Young, who was only elected in 2014 and thus didn't really establish an iron grip on the district as some politicians do when they're around for a couple of decades, he probably would have lost that seat in 2016 since it did go to Barack Obama had not those voters switched to the ignoramus in the Oval Office. Seven candidates are running to be the Democratic nominee to confront Young in the general election, including Austin Frerich, who is pushing a very progressive platform. He's worked in Washington on Capitol Hill as an economist, as someone who's worked in the Congressional Research Service on social policy. So yes, he's a policy wonk, but that can be a very good thing when you're trying to implement progressive policies. And so here you are, you've come back to Iowa, essentially you're an Iowa native, but you've done a lot of work in Washington uh, in public policy. And the first thing that struck me was you, you said that you're the first in your family to attend college. So tell us a little bit about your family and what's the background in Iowa. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm a seventh-generation Iowan. Um, we're a bunch of Irish potato, potato famine refugees from like the 1840s. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that me and my grandma worked on Ancestry.com a few years ago, which was a really fun project. But, um, yeah, I was the first one to attend college in my family. I received a full scholarship to Grinnell College. And, and what did your, were your parents, your father, were, were they farmers? Oh, no. Um, we, we urbanized a few generations ago. My, fa- my father's a truck driver for a big corn company, ADM. Mm-hmm, yep. And then my mom works at a Starbucks. And uh, when your father, as a truck driver, is he a union truck driver? Is he a teamster? No, he's not. He uh, he's third shift, um, and it shows. I mean, they ADM is a large corporation. Yep. And I'll leave it at that. Uh, yes, we're very familiar with uh, the the trials and tribulations of ADM going from their domination of the agricultural market to all sorts of other issues, which if you're inter- interested, you can certainly pick up. So you went to college, and then you basically then began public policy work, right? Yeah, I, I, I love, I mean, Grinnell College is very much gotten like, rooted in the social gospel, like make the world better, like Harry Hopkins, FDR's assistant comes out of that. So it's very much the ethos of the school. I went on to the University of Wisconsin-Madison to do grad work in public policy, and I wanted to focus on poverty policy. And it was kind of there with my research at the Institute for Research on Poverty that I really realized that to really do poverty policy in this country, you've got to do tax policy. Explain that. Explain why. That's a very interesting point. Explain why. It's a really interesting point, but it's a really concerning point because I don't think progressives realize the power of the tax code, because the tax code, at the end of the day, is a reflection of your value system. And, I mean, you take the largest public assistance program for working families in this country is the Earned Income Tax Credit, which essentially is a wage subsidy for for low-wage working moms. Mm-hmm. But, number one, it's such a problem. 
it's a replacement of the old welfare system that Bill Clinton destro- uh, destroyed, essentially, in 1996, where um, you get this little thing through the tax code, and so that's why you see a lot of Walmart parking lots, all these tax shops that pop up around April. But what they do is they cream off a chunk from people. Um, a lot of these families, whoever whoever files first and claims the kid gets the money. So you have a I mean, what happens if I have Johnny for six months, you have Johnny for six months, Whoever files first gets it, no matter what. You don't split it. And then on top of it, the whole that whole program was um, created by Senator Long of Louisiana, and he was an old he was an old racist. Mm-hmm. Where he this this original plan was rooted in Senator Moynihan of New York, and he wanted it for both parents. But Senator Long, the powerful chairman of the Senate Finance at the time, did not want black men to get this. Mm-hmm. That's why it's only for work for moms. I see. Which. Once you say that, like this was a thing that one man decided 30, 40 years ago. We have not rethought this. And then on top of it, Paul Ryan talked about this all the time. The childless EITC, you know, something for the dad. And then he didn't even even include it in his tax bill. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I know. <laughs> well, I, I do think, though, that perhaps progressives now at this moment understand the importance of the tax code. There certainly is a lot of energy around trying to defeat the tax bill as we're speaking. And I think people understand perhaps more and understand policy in general. Um, Certainly they understand the effect of the Glass-Steagall Act and other things that didn't even come into people's consciousness. I would give Bernie Sanders' campaign a lot of credit for that, for inserting all sorts of language and concepts that people didn't necessarily talk about. And I do think the tax code is very much, people are aware of it, maybe not the intricacies, but the notion that that's the way in which the rich rip us off. Oh, I totally agree with you. I, I think Senator Bernie, Senator Sanders, I, I think we're li- what we're living through right now and what you see in this tax bill is the second Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. The fact that you, we are repealing the estate tax that was created in the last Gilded Age to stop estates says everything about this moment. But I think Senator Sanders raised expectations, not just in this continual incrementalism that we've been living under as a, the Democrat Party, but no, this ain't enough is enough. I totally agree with you. And I think people now see, I think a lot of progressives and Democrats now see the power of the tax system. Mm-hmm. So here you are, you have this great, interesting career. You get to do all this great research on, as you point out, executive compensation and the growing of monopolies in the U.S. economy. You're working in Washington. So what all of a sudden flipped the switch in your mind to say, I'm going home to run for public office for Congress? Well, I like to jokingly say, uh, Jonathan, that I was probably the only person in the U.S. Department of Treasury to vote for uh, Senator Sanders in the primary. <laughs> um, I mean, D.C. says D.C. is such a have-have-not town. I mean, five of the richest counties in America are D.C. suburbs. Mm-hmm. It's all graft. Um, there's no middle class. But in that bubble, they don't realize it. They don't realize. I really do think at the end of the day, most there is some misogyny, some racism tied in with this Trump thing. But I think a lot of Iowans who voted for Trump didn't do it because they're bad people. They're just scared. Right. And the tyrant came along to exploit their economic fear. And the district you're running in voted slightly for Trump. I believe it was 48 to 45, if I'm not mistaken, the numbers. Although the recent polling, not surprisingly, shows that he's underwater in your district. But again, to go back to my question, so 
Why do you think you decided that to change that dynamic, running for Congress made sense for you? Because I, when that happened, I blamed Democrats as much as I did Republicans for his win. Mm-hmm. And it was at Treasury as a tax economist. We, we had unlimited taxpayer data. I mean, we were, I, I was fortunate enough to do some incredible research. And that's where I first saw this monopoly thing. And to me, this economic concentration, I think, is the issue of our time and kind of explains everything, where the Koch brothers are just modern-day robber barons. That's all they are. And I didn't see anyone talking about it. And it's also, I didn't want to build a life in D.C. And we were having a conversation, my partner and I, over children. Mm -hmm. And I said, if we're going to make this jump, let's do it now. So, but the thing is, you can't just say monopolies are bad because it doesn't really resonate. You've got to name names. Right. And so that's what you were sort of reading my mind. You come back to Iowa, you announced that you're going to run for Congress. And how do you then, as you're traveling around the district, talk specifically about this issue or related to regular people's lives? Because it seems, honestly, sometimes you have to be careful about being a policy person and seeing, seeming to be too wonky or too abstract to yeah. people. You got to, there's four main reasons monopolies impact your life. Number one, you pay more. When Nestle sells 73% of baby food in this country, there's no competition in that market. Number two, um, you get paid less. When Tyson slaughters half the hogs in this state, you have no bargaining power as an employee. Number three, it's corruption. With economic power comes political power. Uh, And number four um, is a lack of respect. There's a candy company in my district actually closing actually closed yesterday. It's laying off 250 people. Um, a candy company is closing 10 days before Christmas. Hmm. And on top of it, from what I'm hearing from the mayor in the town, it's, he thinks it's because there's a merger going through, where essentially they'll close it before the merger, they'll reopen it, and they're going to bust in the union. So, and so that's a good point on, on unions. Um, uh, obviously, much of what monopoly powers about is the lack of bargaining power that individual workers have and the decline of unions. And I noticed that you are actually a a pro-union person, but how have you seen that actually in your district? I want you to talk less um, theoretically and tell me what it's been like, what you've seen in your district that relates to what you're talking about in the policy realm. Yeah. Um, What I've seen, so that's my like core thing, but then I, you apply it. I mean, if I'm if I'm talking to, if I'm in Council Bluffs, Iowa, the working class town, um, you cannot unionize a Tyson's plant when they have a 50% market control. I mean, part of this is you bust up, you old-fashioned trust bus, and then you organize. Um, and then you just, it's, what I love about this is that then I just use different messages, where if, if I'm talking to farmers, I'm talking about seed monopolies, I'm talking about Bear Monsanto. Um, if I'm in if I'm talking to a young millennial in Des Moines, I'm talking about cable providers and internet, right. baby formula. Now, I would agree with you that the policies that are enforced by monopolies make it very difficult to certainly have any kind of economic leverage. But I will say this, there's lots of small businesses around the country that unions can't organize. So just simply busting up trust is not going to bring back unions. The whole entire labor law makes it impossible to yeah. uh, organize unions. So it's it's not simply let's get rid of monopolies and therefore there will be unions. Oh, very true. But I also think a lot of those laws were 
corrupted or altered because of these monopolies. Mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of money that floods into D.C. with that, you know what I mean? A small business is not going to hire lobbyists, but the Koch brothers are going to hire 500. And it's, it's, it's at that level, that granular level, is where most, that's where a lot of the, um, pe- you know, people profit off complexity, and that's where they manipulate it. I think the pharmaceutical lobby is probably the best at it and the most, I would actually argue, the most corrupt in D.C. It's just manipulating all these tiny little rules for their economic advantage mm-hmm. to undermine you, the worker, and the payer. I noted that there is a competitive Democratic primary in this district, which is a competitive one in the general election. So how are you different than the rest of the Democrats running in the primary? I noted at least one difference is that you're the one person from outside Polk County. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> I'm the only one. Yeah. I would say also, uh, if you notice, I haven't talked about Trump yet. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not. I'm putting forward something. It, it's, all I'm arguing for is competition. And it's, I think this message is unique. Um, no one else in my race will touch these. I mean, when you, when, when I say break up, not only oppose the bear Monsanto merger, but break up Monsanto, that's the biggest target you can put on your back. I mean, they, those two companies alone in the last 10 years spent $130 million lobbying. Um, so not only a month after I announced, they gave $5,000 to my Republican opponent, but they also, through their lobbyists in Iowa, gave $2,700 to one of my Democrat opponents. Which one was that? And she, Teresa Greenfield. We asked them both, actually, to return the money and oppose the merger, and it's been over a month now, and neither have. Um, and those employers, obviously, are huge employers in Iowa, but in your district as well, right? Yeah, I mean, so you asked earlier what my father did. Mm-hmm. The thing about monopolies, though, you know, i got to pick my battles here, because it's like, my dad works at ADM. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I don't want to touch that because, you know, that's where, that's what paid for my college. That said, too, Sinclair Broadcasting, that is incredible the degree of their concentration power going through right now. But they own the largest TV station in my district. Wells Fargo employs 14,000 people in the morning. I mean, that, that's what the scary part of these, these monopoly messages, you know, this concentration. It, it, it's very, you are taking on the biggest Goliath possible, and they will... Um, you know what I mean? Monopolies will do, monopoly will do whatever it can to stay a monopoly. But I think this message, this message, it, it, it moves beyond the normal pol- politics discussion right now. Um, people aren't tribal. I, I can talk with old, older Republican Iowans. I can talk with young millennials, urban Democrats. It's, everyone gets it. If you paint, if you build them that bridge, they get it. Now it's time for our Robber Baron of the Week. Our Robber Baron of the Week is Home Depot CEO Craig Manier. Now in 2016, Manier got $11.5 million in total compensation. And I've chosen him specifically this week because of another act that Home Depot has taken on, which is they are at the top, at the very top of a list of companies who've announced 
share buybacks since the passage of the GOP tax scam bill. So get this, and this is no surprise to those of us who predicted it, just since the bill passed, companies announced $70 billion in share buybacks. Now that does wonders for the stock price and of course the CEO's pay because so much of a CEO's pay is really in shares he gets as I've talked about numerous times on the podcast. But virtually nothing of this stock buyback helps raise workers' pay. And that was exactly what many of us predicted, that the corporate tax cuts would go to enrich CEOs, not give workers a raise. And Home Depot share buyback totals $15 billion. And there are other companies on a long list that the Senate Democrats put out. But because of exactly that, using $15 billion to buy back shares rather than put it into workers' paychecks, Craig Muneer is the robber baron of the week. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guests, Dean Baker and Carolina Miranda from the LA Times, and of course, Austin Frerich, the candidate in Iowa's 3rd Congressional District. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Please do subscribe to the podcast. And since it's a new year, 2018, consider becoming one of our financial supporters so we can bring you this kind of information throughout the year. Look forward to having you back next week.